Theatrical Shenanigans with Anne Fleming. Hello there and welcome to another Sunday episode of Theatrical Shenanigans, which I hope you're enjoying wherever you're listening. If you're a new listener, then welcome along to episode 6 of series 2. Theatrical Shenanigans is an audio podcast where I showcase plays from playwrights all over the world by having them turned into audio plays. But that is not all. Oh no. I also get to have a lovely chat about said play with a guest. But before I introduce the guest for this episode, I want to remind you all that the submissions window for season 3 of Theatrical Shenanigans which will run from April 2024, is now open. I am on the lookout for audio scripts of 15 pages or less with no more than four characters. So if you have one and be sure to send only one, then please send it to rfwscripts at gmail.com with a little blurb about you and the inspiration for your play. Right, now back to our normal programming. My guest today has what I can only describe as a fascinating history as well as being an author and theatre artist, she is also Professor Amrita of English at the US Coast Guard Academy, having served in the Coast Guard for 30 years. And now I'm honoured to have her here to talk about her experiences. Welcome, Anne Flamang. Oh, wow. <laughs> thank you for that lovely introduction. And uh, thank you for having me, Rachel. I'm pleased to be here. Not a problem. It's a pleasure to have you here with what is, quite frankly, an amazing background. Um, before I get too lost in that though how did your journey into the world of theater begin oh gosh you know i mean i as an intensive that's pretty much what i do uh it began after i retired from the coast guard um i was able to uh spend a year at what was then the yale school of drama to study theater management um and then what I wanted to do was to come out and start a theater. Mm. And to give it my background, it made sense to start something uh, that had to do with writing and talking about writing as opposed to a production company. And of course, you are an experienced author of some fascinating sounding pieces. How do you get into the world of being published in essays and articles and that side of things? Um, well, uh, it's just academia. Um, calls for papers come out. Uh, the you know the academic submits a proposal, and if the proposal is selected, then um, then you produce the article for the publication. So you look for you look for calls that have something to do with your scholarly interests, and my scholarly interests were uh, related to gender and um the military uh and as i um became more senior in my you know as an academic i was i was became very interested in the ways in which um art could be deployed to express women's experiences in the military and so mm. really the final you know, like five, six, seven years of my career, that's what I focused on. But then extending from that writing, you're also writing a memoir as well. Is that not right? Yeah, I am. Um, the memoirs, uh, it's it's in a late draft, so fingers crossed an agent will be interested. I'm in the process now of uh, approaching agents. Um, but yes, uh, my I taught at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, as you said, 
And uh, when I first arrived, I was a relatively junior officer um, with five years of experience in the Coast Guard. I went to sea, mm -hmm. I served in an administrative position, and I wanted to come back and help cadets, especially women cadets, but not only women cadets, but cadets mm -hmm. be prepared for um, the challenges of leadership in in the Coast Guard. And I think that women, at least in those years, we're talking the mid 1980s, um, you know, they had challenges specific to their gender. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that um, led me to coach because that was a good way to meet cadets outside of the classroom and develop relationships where they could trust the officer enough to confide in them. And that's where the work occurred. So it's a world that obviously I've never even gotten a glimpse into before, because also within your uh, service to the Coast Guard, you supported some amazing groups and organizations, including a cadets writing center. So you not only had the writing side yourself, but you brought it through to the, the next generation, I suppose. Exactly. It, I mean, and it, I have to tell you, um, you know, a lot of professors don't enjoy teaching writing, which is understandable. The grading is, um, it, there's a lot of grading and it takes a lot of time. Mm. Um, but uh, I always enjoyed the teaching of writing and specifically working at the writing center because, uh, interestingly enough, you really get to know the students because they bring their writing to you, but you don't just talk about the writing. You talk about what's going on in their life right then and why they're so stressed and how they can manage their time better. And why are you writing about this topic, which opens up all kinds of biographical information. And I will tell you, there are papers that I read 35 years ago that I still remember. I just, I say, I, have to say it's it's amazing to read about the journey you've been on and the titles you've had as a as an actor a director a writer a, a founder of the of a depot a professor and you know many others um I, <laughs> i'm going to ask the question that people have asked me when i talk about what i do how do you find the time and do you ever sleep <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's really funny um well, I, you know, how, how does one uh, find the time? I have a friend who says to me, we have the time for what we find important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the arts are what I love. Yeah. Um, I'm passionate about them. I'm passionate about theater. And, and so that gets the priority, right? And so other things are not, you know, they just fall off. They're, you know, they just don't happen. Mm. Um. So just one last question, though, because I feel I could talk about your career all day. Um, <laughs> do, do you have um, a moment that stands out for you um, in your kind of journey through the world of theatre? Like one moment that's always stuck with you whenever you kind of think back and go, yes, that was the moment for me. Oh, that is such a great question. <laughs> um, it, it was a production of... Uh, hello dolly and i was cast as dolly levi oh wow. and um we we did a we did a a curtain call i work with a company now it's an ensemble and we don't do curtain calls where you know the 
the more minor characters come out and then the middle minor characters come out and then the yeah. stars come out or whatever. We each come out, hold our hands and do an ensemble curtain call, which I love and I love working with this company. But in this production of, of Dolly, it was, you know, the standard where the chorus comes out and the dancers come out and everything. So Dolly comes out last. And of course, you know, she comes down that huge staircase, <laughs> which is, you know, a standard Jerry Herman uh, set piece. And the audience just, it just came to its feet. But I think what that moment meant to me, it wasn't about me per se. It was about what we had all done on that stage mm. um, and that it touched the audience. And I think that's what I have tried to do in my writing. And that's what, in a sense, I'm trying to do in the depot is to touch the playwright with our feedback. I mean, it's, I think ultimately it's about connection. It made me believe. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in the power of the arts. I don't know that it, the power of the arts will change the world, but they can really impact a life. And um, that's exciting. All right. Now we move on to talk about the writer of our play for this week. Ryan Kaminsky is a playwright from New Jersey, USA. He is a lover of the thriller and drama genre, having had multiple productions of his works across the USA and on radio. Kaminsky's specialities are edge-of-your-seat thrillers as well as thought-provoking character-driven dramas. Included in his fabulous collection are plays like Forgotten Falls, The Patient, The Guilty and The Deal, and that is the play we're here to listen to. The Deal was originally written for a short play contest during the summer of 2020, with the requirements being that the play be set on a front porch. It was also to include certain props and actions, which I won't reveal to you now because, well, spoilers. The character of Arthur Nelligan is a character Ryan resurrected for this play, having previously been featured in a full-length horror. The concept for The Deal was inspired by the 1981 film Eye of the Needle, starring Donald Sutherland and Kate Nelligan, who provided her surname to the featured character Arthur. In this piece, Arthur Nelligan arrives at the home of Vivian, a character inspired by fictional Southern Bells. From the point of their meeting, there unfolds an intriguing conversation about past memories and deals struck. Theatrical Shenanigans presents The Deal by Ryan Kaminsky. to you, Billy Boy. Oh, I'm sorry, I... 
didn't mean to frighten you. No, no, the fault's mine. I'm afraid I forgot my manners. Here I am taking a dance break like a silly little girl when I have a visitor. A very distinguished visitor. Was that William Howard on the trumpet by any chance? Yes. Yes, it was. I thought so. I could never fail to recognize a signature Howard solo. Oh, nobody could play the trumpet quite like Billy Boy. <laughs> My name is Arthur Nelligan. And you must be Vivian, a.k.a. Billy Boy's wife? I am. I mean, I was. I mean, I'm not sure if you heard, but... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to word it like that. Yes, yes, I know all about the accident. I saw it on the news and I passed by the bridge on the way over. Forgive me, this was not the way I meant to introduce myself. How's about we start over then? Fine by me. What exactly can I do for you this evening, Mr. Nelligan? Believe it or not, but I'm here to bring you something. Something that belonged to your late husband. Bring me something? Are you saying you knew William? <laughs> I did. I met him in New Orleans when he was a starving artist working at a voodoo shop in the French Quarter. Goodness, that must have been ages ago. It was. It was right before he caught his big break at the Jackson Club. Oh, the Jackson. It's been years since I was there. William and I would go all the time. They hung his picture on the wall and everything. I was in the audience the night he first played there. He was just a scared, scrawny kid back then, willing to do whatever it took to prove himself. The audience certainly wasn't on his side when they first laid eyes on him. That was until he started to play. And the rest... The rest is history. It's really amazing you were there when it happened. It was quite the night, to say the least. A, whew, a much cooler night for certain. Goodness. You must be hard. Especially in a suit like that. How's about some lemonade to cool you off? Sounds lovely. Great. Have a seat and I'll be back with another glass. What's this? Goodness. Now, I'm the one who's forgotten their manners. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pry. I was looking at the check because I wasn't sure what it was. It's quite all right. Life insurance people bought it earlier this afternoon. Never even realized he had life insurance. I've always been a bit of a scatterbrain with money, especially when it's unexpected money. I guess I haven't got a chance to bring it inside yet. Ooh. Something wrong? No, 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 no. I, I just didn't expect it to be so sweet. Want to know a secret? 
all my friends think it's homemade. But I just use frozen lemonade and pour in some extra sugar. Interesting. Well, like I always say, we all have our secrets. What happened there? Those... Those aren't burn marks, are they? I'm afraid I was rather careless with the stove a while back. I can be quite the klutz at times, as you can see by my finger. You said you had something for me? Yes, yes, yes. Now, keep in mind that I've tried to keep this in decent condition over the years. Oh, my. One of William's first trumpets. In fact, it was the first trumpet he played as Billy Boy Howard. Wait, are you telling me this is the trumpet he played that night at the Jackson? That it is. Look here if you don't believe me. My goodness. This is a pamphlet from the club that night. It's dated and everything. I do declare... How on earth did you get this? Uh, it was mine originally. You see, the night before William was set to play at the Jackson, he dropped his only trumpet off the fire escape at his apartment. He, he desperately needed a new trumpet, so, so I let him borrow mine. That was very kind of you. If you don't mind my asking, why did you hang on to the pamphlet for all those years? Because I knew William would be heading straight for the top. After that performance, I knew the items from that night would be worth something one day. You were right there. I know many of William's fans who would pay top dollar for these things. Especially now. I just can't believe you came all the way out here to give them to me. Now that you mention it, there is another reason for my presence this evening. Oh? You see, I'm afraid your husband owed me something, um, something he failed to deliver. Oh, I see. Well, Mr. Nelligan, it embarrasses me to say this, but you're not the first person whom William was indebted to. Tell you what, how about in the morning we go to my lawyer and see if we can work something out? I'm afraid your lawyer would be quite useless in this case. I don't understand. Flip the pamphlet over and read. I, William Howard, do solemnly swear that in exchange for my success, my fame and my fortune, I will grant Mr. Arthur Nelligan Finish it. Complete and total ownership over my soul. You'll see the initials are written in blood, as is the date. What on earth is this? It's a contract, Mrs. Howard, signed and dated by your husband. It states that, in exchange for me giving him the fame and fortune he's so desired in life, I was to receive ownership over his soul at the time of his death. I'm not sure what kind of game you're playing, but it's not funny. Oh, I agree. There's nothing funny about it. Just like there's nothing funny about those cigarette burns on your arms. Come on, Mrs. Howard. We both know that you didn't burn yourself on the stove. Billy Boy used to put his cigarettes out on you when he got drunk. He told me himself. And when did he tell you this? 
Oh, about an hour or two after he died. Okay. I'm calling the police. Go ahead. The police have no power over me. No man does. Stop it! Stop it right now and tell me who you really are. Who I really am. Over the years I've gone by many names. For I was present when the earth began. I've soared above your skies as an angel, slithered through your gardens as a snake, and walked among your people as a charming stranger. Through it all, man has looked to me for guidance and often turned to me as a last resort. I am whatever man needs me to be. And in the case of your husband, I was the one who could make all his dreams come true. And... As part of the deal we made, I was promised a soul. A soul that I have yet to collect. Oh, my God. You can see it in my eyes now, can't you? You can see that I'm telling you the truth. If my husband promised you his soul, then what are you doing here? My husband is dead. So why don't you have his soul yet? Because the man who promised me his soul wasn't the same man who drove off that bridge. The man who promised me his soul still had a soul worth collecting. But over the years he'd let his fame and fortune destroy everything that made his soul pure. He cheated, he lied, he stole, and most of all, he delighted in abusing you. Such crimes made his soul rot, and I cannot take a rotten soul. What do you want with me? Isn't it obvious? When your husband died, you inherited all his fortune, which means... which means you also inherited all his debts. No. No, you can't be serious. You know I am. Or else I wouldn't be here. As part of my deal, I need a soul that's fresh and pure. And with Billy Boy's soul as black as night, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm left with yours. No, please. No, my soul is far from pure. It's pure compared to your husband's. The man committed every crime short of murder, and because of that, I need... What did you just say? I said he committed every crime short of murder. And does murder blacken the soul? Of course it does. Does a God-fearing woman like yourself really need to ask me that? Why are you laughing? Is this somehow funny to you? No. What's funny is you never asked me about my finger. Your your finger? What, What are you talking about? Well, William did abuse me. What happened to my finger was my own doing. I cut it myself. I cut it while I was puncturing the brake line of his car. You... You did what? I punctured his brake line. Which means... William drove off that bridge because of me. I murdered him. And I would gladly do it again. So... If murder blackens the soul... And I'm afraid my soul is as black as your time, Mr. Nelligan. No. No, 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 you're lying. You're lying! You can see it in my eyes now, can't you? 
You can see that I'm telling you the truth. How dare you! How dare you cheat me! As you said before, we all have our secrets, don't we? Here's to you, Billy Boy. to say it's nice to see the devil get what he deserves that was helen fullerton as vivian howard and andy duncan as arthur nelligan in the deal by ryan kaminsky so and what are your initial thoughts um my first thought was uh at some point i thought oh this is the devil mm-hmm. um and and i it just reminded me a little bit of Connor McPherson's The Seafarer, mm. um, which is a play I absolutely love. But Ryan does something that I did not expect and did not see coming. And it it, I, it thrilled me. I'm like, <laughs> th- and he did it in 10 minutes. You know, Connor McPherson <laughs> had two acts <laughs> and Ryan did it in 10 minutes. So just just a wonderful wonderful piece of writing yeah i just for me i love the the imagery that came to my mind of this kind of this hot summer day and this woman just sat on her porch drinking lemonade <laughs> and then being approached by this this handsome stranger and then the the twists and turns start to unfold and that moment at the end where he realizes she's got him is just right yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> yes but that's the the other thing as well is because you are given so much of these kind of tidbits about her past and about her husband and about his past you can you almost start to want to see more of their life so not not only is it um entertaining as a scene it also makes you as an audience member kind of want to know more absolutely i completely agree um it and it began it begins somewhat mysteriously because i don't know who billy boy is um i know there's jazz in the background um i don't know i remember my questions are is billy boy someone playing (laughs) that song and uh you know and so i just had questions about um uh, you know, about who she was and why she was toasting the Billy boy. Um, so there are a lot of questions about her. Um, so I, I completely agree. And of course, Arthur is intended to be mysterious. Mm. Um, you know, certainly to her, even if the audience kind of picks up, he's uh, he's not what he appears to be to her. Um, but then, you know, that dramatic tension is, it works really well also in in favor of the other denouement the play as a as a as an audio piece though i did i quite liked the 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 juxtaposition of obviously 
Vivian being um, very broad Southern uh, US and then uh, Arthur is this very kind of well-spoken British uh, person. Because um, I, I think it creates like a lovely um, kind of opposites to the characters. Oh, and I'll, I completely agree with that. I, I, just in terms of the sound of it. Mm. Um, but I really loved this podcast version because of the sound effects and um, you know, congratulations to everyone involved in mm. in the production, the actors and the and the designers and the sound designer just or designers did just such a brilliant job. I liked the contrast of of the sound of the southern accent with the sound of the British accent. But but it for me listening, it was beautiful to hear that southern accent playing against the British accent was just really wonderful. Mm. Okay, we are uh, almost out of time. So oh. and all, all in all, what are your uh, thoughts of the piece as a whole? I think this is such a great, uh, again, as I said uh, from the top, uh, Ryan makes a lot happen in 10 minutes. This is absolutely a, a crowd pleaser and um deserves uh it worked beautifully as an audio um as an audio play uh but it deserves to be seen by audiences and i would just say for anyone listening out there we need more productions where short plays are being produced in a single night because mm -hmm. there are just so many great short plays and they need audiences there you go. Any producers listening, you have been told. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we are out of time. But Anne, thank you so much for being here and discussing the play and talking about your extraordinary journey. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Rachel. And that brings us to the end of another brilliant play and a wonderful chat in this episode of Theatrical Shenanigans. However, I shall be returning again in two weeks' time for episode 7 and our Halloween special play. Another reminder that the submissions window for season 3 is still open but you only have two weeks left so make sure you get those scripts in if you want to be considered. I hope you can join me again in a fortnight but in the meantime, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams, this is Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying I hope you can join us next time. Theatrical Shenanigans was an RFW scripts production with music written and produced by Chris Cody. <laughs>